0: Nine,
1: Nine eight, eight, seven, six, six five, four, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I'd say. say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but uh, you No, know, I think my record speaks for itself. It's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Alongside me in our studios at Elmstall
2: is uh colleague joe manis
1: who has a bit of a cough as you heard in the introduction I always do. sorry and uh Spring. A v- our very special guest one of the prides of franklin county missouri
0: scott dickhouse executive director house republican campaign committee
1: and a former state representative republican from uh washington missouri correct correct beautiful place beautiful I'd... place actually, great restaurants
2: it is. actually it is i went to a <laughs> wedding there about last fall and it was beautiful
0: yeah. I, I'd like to think it's the best spot in the state. So. Uh, but it's, so does everybody. So. Well, well, they
2: have a cafe there that's known for their breakfast.
0: Uh, Cowan's? Yes. Yes. I was just there this morning for
1: a meeting. Oh. Whoa. <laughs>
0: don't, don't get me started. That place just has to, fantastic to, to, to quote
1: Tony's Kansas City, that's breaking an exclusive news <laughs> here on the Politically Speaking co- Podcast. So, um, you know, before we get into uh, hard-hitting issues of the day. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into politics, sure. and then we'll kind of also have you explain what the House Republican Campaign Committee is. So- sure.
0: I, I kind of happened into politics accidentally. I was a high school social studies teacher. Where at? Um, in Herman, Missouri, at the high school. Now, where'd you grow up? Uh, Washington. Okay, been in Washington my whole life. Um, I
1: have to ask did yeah. you did you teach Brock Olivo social studies I,
0: I did not Brock Olivo was uh, ahead of my time by a few years because I was I was entering high school I think as he was leaving I, high school I'm so a, he was he was older so than So what did you teach
1: I taught uh, taught
0: government coincidentally uh, taught uh, world history and psychology
1: okay. Yeah. And and by the way if Brock Olivo is listening to this show I'm a big fan of broccoliville (laughs) post-2008 congressional race. And I mean that sincerely. He was a good sport after uh, his infamous uh, video. But uh, continue.
0: Uh, High school teacher. And uh, first year I started teaching, I'd gotten married that year. Everything was just kind of, you know, I was becoming an adult finally. Um, I had decided to get involved with politics. I went to a local uh, Franklin County Young Republicans meeting. It happened to be 2000. Uh, two, which was the year that the Republicans took the majority in the House. And I met this guy, Dave Hegeman, who uh, was executive director for HRCC. And we went out and we knocked doors and we were knocking doors for local candidates and getting involved. I stayed in touch with Dave. And a few years down the road, 2007, my predecessor, uh, Representative Kevin Threlkeld, Um, had decided that he was not going to run for re-election for his final term and uh, was going to instead run for a a post in in Franklin County. And uh, he kind of came to me and let me know and um, you know, we decided to to give it a go and run for office. So it was it was, you know, kind of a unique turn. my 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 initial plan was to teach be a principal, be a superintendent, retire at fifty something, and then yeah. run for office. So detour <laughs> got a little
1: but it, Franklin County politics is kind of interesting because you have what I would consider more moderate Republicans, like we John do. Griesheimer and maybe Dave Henson. You have some um, more conservative Republicans, like Brian Nieves, who is now a former state senator. And then you kind of have the people who are kind of in between, like yourself and, and Representative Paul Kurtman, who I think hold conservative views but are probably more pragmatic and practical than maybe the other two camps. Is that a fair view of, of Franklin County or am I just nutty at this point?
0: I'll, I'll take that. Um, no, I, I think that that's probably a pretty fair view of the county. And, and, you know, Franklin County not too long ago prior to 2002 was really kind of Democrat controlled. Correct. Correct. Uh, so yeah. it's, it's one of those areas of the state that turned red maybe a few years before some of the rest of the state. But um, you know, it, it's not like it's this bastion of conservatism that's been there forever, mm-hmm. you know, like maybe in St. Charles or down in Greene County. Uh, so there's there's a spectrum uh, within the Republican Party there.
1: So when you were in the House, one of your big, uh, I think, uh, niche issues, and it's not really a niche issue because it's a, a major one, is education. You sure. were actually the chairman of the House Education Committee. Um, and I, I, I would guess that part of the reason why you became interested in that is your educational background. But one thing I noticed from talking with you then was that you know you were kind of part of this never-ending battle between what is derisively called like the educational establishment, like principals, right. school administrators, teachers, and people that want to enact, quote unquote, school reform. Sure. And that could be tuition tax credits, vouchers, et cetera. It, what what was it kind of like to be kind of part of that battle?
0: <laughs> it was miserable. Um, it was, it, you know, I asked uh, Speaker Tilly to be the chair of the education committee. And, um, you know, he was kind enough to bestow that upon me. And then I regretted it. Uh, it. It's tough. It's a really, really tough thing to do. And, you know, unfortunately, I think the longer you are in the Capitol building, you kind of see that, really it's a, it's a battle line um you know between people that want some change in the system they want some more option they want things to look a, a little bit different and uh you know those people that you know are advocating for kind of a status quo type solution and and typically just asking for more money to fix the problem um it was it was a tough place to be and we were handling you know the the turner situation when i was uh, chair of the education committee so the the school transfer issue that's a big mm-hmm. you know hot button issue today and coincidentally the bill that ended up passing this year was a lot like the bill that we had proposed to the folks that are maybe deemed education establishment or whatever um myself and and jane cunningham senator at the time uh, we had talked to him and said hey let's open up some charter schools let's open up some options let's um, you know, maybe add some virtuals in here to give uh, some additional opportunities for kids that maybe don't fit in a traditional classroom setting. Um, and they said, nope, we're going to win in court and we're not really interested in working on that.
1: Yeah, but it's it's kind of, I think, fait accompli at this point that the governor that we're recording this on on Wednesday. So and we're probably going to be posting it on Monday. So it's kind of seems fait accompli that the governor is going to veto the bill you just uh, talked about sure. now.
2: Now, one, one of the things about charter schools, without getting into the weeds, I'm am just talking about the political aspects of it. Sure, um, is that it had been pushed as some sort as as a type of reform. Some charter schools have done better than others. Right. Some have gotten involved in financial controversies. Looking at it just in a and some have actually gotten more uh, political support than they used to have. When you just look at it just in general, just quickly. Um, what what do you, what do you think has been the climate for charter schools especially going forward
0: you know i think charter schools have have kind of turned a corner a little bit and one of the things that uh, i got to work on during my last few years in the house and i worked you know uh, very closely with representative now state or city treasurer tashara jones um you know was was working on the charter school issue and we both believed that there should be choice that there should be options and alternatives uh, and we both believed that the bad players needed to be closed down, and that there needed to be a mechanism for that to happen, and there needed to be a, a way for that to happen easier. Um, so she and I worked together on legislation, and and she carried that legislation. Um, Representative Todd Richardson, in his early you know years, his first term, helped us across the finish line. Um, you know, we got charter school legislation passed that. I think has made charter schools a lot better. And I think we've gotten rid of some of the bad actors and the bad players and the people that were abusing the system and and not handling things monetarily and educationally the way that they should have. Um, I think that charter schools, I think, are less a boogeyman in Jefferson City now than they were then just a few years ago, four or five years ago. I, I think that people are more open and accepting to the idea of charter schools you know, so now you've got the boogeymen of you know vouchers and open enrollment and all the other things, you know that that are still out there.
1: There's a lot of boogeymen in, in Jefferson there are, City. There are. There yes. are. The Boogieing down. So you did you, <laughs> you know, you actually decided not to run for re-election before right. you hit term limits to become the executive director of the HRCC. What what kind of went into that decision?
0: You know, it was uh, I was working with then executive director uh, Aaron Willard, um, and. uh we were working on a special election out in St. Charles County that ultimately resulted in Chrissy Summer getting elected. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were out knocking doors one day and, and doing things, doing work. And uh, he asked me if I had time to grab a bite for dinner afterwards. So we went out and he said, hey, I've got this opportunity to go to work for Congresswoman, well, not then, but uh, Ann Wagner's congressional campaign. Yeah. Right. And, um, you know, it's a it was a great opportunity for him. And he had asked me if I would have interest in maybe not running for reelection and stepping into the role with the House Republican Campaign Committee.
1: Yeah. Are you are you done ever running for anything again at this? point? I
0: think so. My brother calls me every once in a while and asks me if I'm running for different things. But I think he's the only one that might still vote for me.
1: Understood. So
2: so how do you see uh, what the HRCC does? And now going into the next uh, campaign site
1: yeah and i just want to add like we've talked a lot about this shows how some of the party committees have lost a lot of money since campaign finance sure. donations the hrcc is not one of them it's also often one of the most highly stocked financially committees in the state so sure. so with that in mind uh, you can continue on Joe's question.
0: You know, it's uh, uh, HRCC is one of those things that was kind of founded in the '90s when Republicans were at a low. Uh, there, there weren't a whole lot of Republicans right. in Jefferson City, and you had, you know, some smart folks. You had, you know, Jim Talents and Frank Flotrons and David Barkledges and Mark Richardson's and all these, you know, names that kind of resurface as they always do in politics. Uh, But they got together and said, hey, we need to do something here and we need to pool our resources or Republicans are going to to stay in the minority for a long, long time. Um, And and really what it is, is we just kind of ask our members, you know, those that are in safer seats or, you know, are able to to raise a little bit more money than they need for their reelections or elections, to kind of put it into the pot and uh, help other Republicans in other parts of the state that are in more competitive districts. And that's really kind of the foundation for what we do. And then obviously, you know, we go out and we, we fundraise outside of that as well. And I think that HRCC, you know, one of the reasons that we haven't fallen off uh, with our fundraising is that we haven't stopped being successful. Um, you know, we've continued to kind of grow that number and grow that majority and protect that majority um so when we're you know selling our product we're selling our brand we're selling our name people are willing to buy into
1: that yeah i think there's two things that i assume is going on there number one i think if you're somebody who wants to donate donate to one of the the house political parties you kind of donate to the democrats at your own risk because you're if you donate to them you're kind of expecting that you know, they're going to be in the majority. And frankly, the House Democrats will probably not be in the majority in the House for decades to come. I would
2: I, say at least 20 years. Probably. So
1: that's probably why the HRCC gets a lot of money, because people typically donate to the, the, the entity that's going to get in power. Um, but the, the other reason is, as you said, the success. And when I've actually talked with you the last two election cycles before Election Day, sure. oftentimes you've been like, well, we're probably going to either lose a seat or we're going to gain a seat. And in both of those instances, you were wrong, but you were wrong. You, you, you gained probably more seats than you expected, even in 12, which was not a good Republican year. And Jason,
0: year. I, I probably have to ask forgiveness here. I mean, it's it's managing expectations. We knew going into right. both of those elections that we were going to have a relatively good night. 12 ended up being a, a rocky one. And, you know, we ended up probably winning a few fewer seats than we had hoped mm-hmm. we would. Um, but you I, know, but we, we outperformed the rest of the party, the statewide ticket and the Senate so uh, going into
2: 2016, which is going to be a presidential sure. election year, it's going to be a diff- It's going to be in some ways more like 2008 from the standpoint that you're going to have right. an open White House. So you're going to have uh, nominees on both sides. <clears throat> and I know that looking at 2012, just because one party has a presidential candidate that's going to do better in the state, we're talking about Mitt Romney, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to have coattails because Correct. of the senate fight between mccaskill and aiken turned Correct. out that mccaskill had the coattails not romney but looking at 2016 um where it could be hillary clinton it may be somebody else and then you've got a whole crowd of republicans what how the how will that trickle down effect um when it gets down to your level because many people have said that they believe that the presidential contests actually in some ways have more impact on these state legislative races because people go to the polls and they don't know the names.
0: Well, and the coattails are really kind of a result of the quality of candidates that the party puts together as a whole. So, you know, when you vote at the top of the ticket, you've got the president and you get down to, you know, U.S. Senate and governor and Congress and, you know, all of these races that are significantly larger than a state representative race. And if the party brand is doing well, Uh, In the state. So if the the presidential candidates doing well in the state and our slate of candidates is strong and I really feel like it's going to be in 2016, we do get coattails uh, down at the state Senate, state representative level, county office level. Um, and I really kind of look forward to 2016. I think that those coattails are going to be there in Missouri for Republicans. Well,
1: this is my question because one of the things that has just frankly shocked me because I this is year nine for my year uh, this is year nine for my political reporting career, and in 2006, you know, Northeast Missouri had a majority Democratic delegation Correct. to the Missouri Legislature. In fact, it was pretty much a majority until, like. 2010. Then you had this election cycle where there are literally no Democrats representing Northeast Missouri. You have no one Democrat representing Jefferson County. Or Southeast. Or Southeast Missouri, or or Saline County, Howard County. My question is, if Hillary Clinton is the nominee, and Hillary Clinton, if you look back at the 2008 primaries, did decently in the rural parts of the state, could you possibly see some of those traditionally Democratic areas revert to form a little bit? I think that some of those areas that have
0: you know longstanding Democrat. So you look at the the state senate, the state house map, and you see all this red. But if you look at those counties, a lot of those counties still have a lot of Democrat office holders up and down the ticket. There's no Republican office holders in some of those counties. Right. Um, so it's it's one of those kind of slow change things. I think that it's possible to have a Democrat presidential candidate run relatively strong in Missouri. I don't know that it's possible to win Missouri as a Democrat presidential nominee right now.
2: Yeah, just for a history lesson, last time a Democrat carried the state for president was Bill Clinton in 1996, and he did not get a majority. He got 47 percent right. in a three-way race. Right.
0: Okay. So it's, you know, I, I think that she could help the Democrat ticket, but I still feel like Republicans have a lot of great candidates for president. I think that the Republican will definitely help in Missouri. I think that our gubernatorial candidate, our gubernatorial field is obviously large right now. Yes. Um, But I think that speaks to the depth of quality candidates, Republican candidates in Missouri right now. Uh, I think that almost any of them would make a good governor. Uh, which I think says a lot for the state of the party right now. Well,
1: let's talk about influences on these races that may be a little bit closer to home. Obviously, the last week of the legislative session, we've talked about ad nauseum on this show. Um, a, uh, as ad w-
2: nauseum. Yes. Ad nauseum. I'm not going <laughs> to repeat
1: what happened. You you guys can listen on previous shows about the last week. But you know, you had a situation where the House Speaker resigned there as of Wednesday. Now, there's possible he might be under federal investigation. And, and uh,
2: or he may not, or to he may f- not. To be fair to former uh state house speaker Dundale, put it quickly, he resigned um, the last couple of days of session because of a scandal involving uh sex text that he was exchanging with 19 year old intern. Um, more recently, there have been um people who have said they've been interviewed with the FBI about alleged uh contracts the FBI was just asking questions. Deal has told us on the record that he has not been approached by the FBI, which often is interesting because often if you're a target, they do uh, talk to you at some point.
1: After that explanation, how do you think that this turmoil is going to affect Republican candidates going forward? You
0: know, I think house races are probably your your last really local race um, you know where you can meet the candidate, you can touch them, you can shake their hand, you can go to events, um, and it's it's much more personal. Uh, so I don't think that it's going to have a dramatic impact on House races. I think that most of our candidates are out, you know, working in their districts. They know people in their districts. When we're recruiting candidates, we're looking for people that are a good fit for their district. They have a good name. They're involved in civic organizations. They're well known because they're teachers or referees or business owners or, or whatever. So I, I don't know that the situation with you know in Jefferson City really impacts much um, House-level races. Well,
1: I want to play a clip from Representative Stephen Weber just as kind of maybe a preview of what Democrats are going to throw at sure. Republican candidates that you may be examining next year. Sure. There's also a very real degree of frustration with the person that kills gender pay mm-hmm. and kills Missouri, uh, Mona, which is uh, so you can't, discriminate based on sexual orientation Um, and people that say that they have a moral problem with that and then go do this. That's almost an extra layer of frustration. So, I'm sure you've heard that argument before from other Democrats, and obviously a lot of things are still in flux, but are you kind of expecting to hear that argumentation against the Republican Party as a a whole next year?
0: You know, I, I think that that's going to be out there, but I think that most people are going to be concerned about, you know, how much of their paycheck they're able to take home, about the quality of education that their kids are getting, about the health care that they're able to get and how much their insurance premiums are going up. I think those are the things that people are going to be looking at when they go to vote next year. I don't think that they're going to be digging up old headlines from a year and a half before the election saying, I wonder what happened in Jefferson City, and then trying to make some kind of leap and tying that to their current state representative or somebody that might be running for office.
1: So you, you, uh, you mentioned earlier in the show about Todd Richardson, the House Speaker, who we should be having on this show again pretty soon. What's kind of your expectations for him?
0: You know, Todd, I, and I've talked to you before about yes. this, Jason. I mean, Todd's a, an extraordinarily talented guy, and there are a lot of different components to being, I think, a successful speaker. And Todd possesses kind of a complete skill set. You know, there's the obviously the in-building relationships, uh, understanding of policy and, and how it affects things. Todd has that. Uh, there's kind of the political campaign savvy, and then there's the ability, obviously, to to raise money to help protect that majority that's, that's making your speaker. And Todd really kind of possesses a complete skill set. Um, you know, we've had speakers before that possess, you know, one or two of the three. Um, Todd really kind of gets all of it. I, I have high expectations for him, but I do think it's a little unfair to expect that, you know, one person, one of 163, is going to come in and somehow save the state from any ills.
2: Yeah, because that was one thing I was wondering is if it doesn't put a lot of pressure on Representative Richardson because everybody's expecting him to walk on water and he is a average person. In fact, the, person.
1: this is a clip from House, former House Speaker Steve Tilley making that exact point. Read
2: the clippings whenever I became Speaker. Read them when Ron Richards became Speaker, when Tim Jones became Speaker, when John Dale became Speaker. And you'll find that the clippings to all of them with on Facebook, social media, are all very similar to what you're hearing right now. That they walked on water. That's right. <laughs>
1: Joe, that was a fantastic transition, (laughs) by the way. You know, we've had House Speaker Tilly on a couple of times. He's been an an outstanding guest. I know that you were, uh, he was Speaker when you were there. What do you kind of make of his comments?
0: Yeah, I think he's right. I think that people have high expectations, as they do anytime there's a, you know, when there's a newly elected president, when there's a newly elected governor, when there's a newly elected mayor, I think that there's high expectations. And I think that there's, you know, some degree of, confidence uh, going into a new administration of any kind. And I think that Todd carries that. Now, I do think that Todd has the ability and the grounding and and the expertise to, to be a very effective speaker. Uh, but again, that's, you know, uh, you've got a speaker, you've got a senate body you've got the governor's mansion you've got a lot of components to getting things done and Todd's only one part of that
1: now one of the thing the big first test for him is going to be during veto session sure. because um one of the bills that will come up or may not come up is so-called right to work legislation and since it originated in the house it'll be up to speaker richardson and whoever is the house majority leader and the house leadership about whether they're gonna actually try to override that because, Joe, if you provide some background about that.
2: uh, Yeah, quick thing, right to work, would prevent uh, unions and uh, employers from requiring all workers to pay dues if a majority vote to uh, join a union. Now, in the previous votes in the House, it did pass the House, but it was uh, almost roughly two dozen short of the necessary, I mean, it's changed a little bit, but uh, roughly around 20 or so, Short of what's needed for an override, and in the Senate, it's a little tighter. I'm interested in your take. There have been various analyses by people in both camps uh, saying that they don't think the House is going to be able to come up with the votes, and then the question becomes, does Richardson even bring it up? I'm interested in your take on all this.
0: Well, and that's—I mean, that's that's got to be Todd's call, and that's really a tough issue to kind of have heaped on your plate. You know, coming into this role, right? Uh, you know, it, it was something that was, uh, you know, something that Speaker Deal wanted to, to push and promote and uh, was able to get it through the House for the first time and uh, send it over to the Senate where they were able to pass it. <clears throat> They're a little closer to their veto uh, override vote than we are, but obviously originating in the House. But,
2: but they have a divided leadership on they it do. because Dempsey's opposed to right to work on Richard as, correct. whereas on the House it's pretty much as far as leaders – Correct. The Republican leaders throw off for
0: it. You know, I, I think that Todd is probably just going to have to really work the issue and have a lot of individual conversations. I know he started having those with members directly uh, to see if there's an appetite there, to see if there's a way to create an appetite, uh, to see if it's an issue worth pursuing. And he's got to make a judgment call at the end of the day with, uh, with the leadership and with the caucus. And I, I would assume that it's going to be a big part of the
1: conversation that we have at our annual summer well, that was caucus be, event. Yeah, that was going to be my question because one of the things that has kind of befuddled me in this entire situation is if you don't have the votes to do right to work or you don't have the governor, you're basically putting a lot of Republicans who are opposed to right to work in Jefferson County, in maybe some of the- in North yeah, Kansas City. Yeah, North they're Kansas
2: conservative state. labor sure. areas, so they're kind of split. Or
1: Jefferson County, obviously. Right, correct. Um, you know, you're kind of putting them at risk after the Republicans have made these gains in these places. Does it concern you that they may be venturing off on essentially an unproductive policy initiative that may have really long-term political damage to your cause? You know, I think that that's been
0: a part of the conversation from the beginning here is, you know, was it worth pursuing and, and Speaker Deal, you know, was committed to the cause and decided it was worth pursuing. Uh, so now it's just a matter of, you know, trying to figure out what the best course of action is moving forward. You know, if you look at the the folks that were kind of no votes on the right to work issue, a lot of them are from those labor heavy areas that you had mentioned, Jefferson County, North Kansas City, uh, kind of a south central, southeast Missouri segment, St. Francis uh, County, Washington County, that area. Um, it, it's, it's really just a, a tough, tough Thing to have dealt to you. And, I, I you know, Speaker Richards is going to handle this, and I'm sure he's going to handle it well. Um, but I'm, I'm interested to see how it all plays out.
2: Now, about a month ago, actually, um, some labor groups started running some anti-right-to-work uh, TV ads, which actually actually surprised me because it was fairly early. They did that for a few weeks. Uh, governor vetoed it, and then that's kind of – they're off the air right now. Right. Now, but the right-to-work proponents, as we speak – are going up on TV today with pro-right-to-work ads. My question is, and these are outside groups in both cases, it's labor before, now this is some conservative uh, groups. How much of an impact does that have on legislators? I mean, for someone that's heading the HRCC, I'm sure (laughs) you, you hear some of the fallout. I'm interested in your take on what these independent ads do or don't do.
0: Well, and, and this is what I can tell you is a lot of people assume that elected officials don't listen to people back home in their districts, and that's absolutely wrong. Um, so if these, you know, ads or phone calls or, or whatever is out there generate responses to their elected officials, their elected officials are inclined to try to listen. And um, if, if you know, these ads that are pro-right-to-work, you know, generate a bunch of calls, a bunch of support to people that are maybe no votes, they might flip votes, you know, and the same might happen the opposite direction. Um, they People really do listen to the people back in their districts. Now, you know, if it's one or two people that call in, you know, that's that's not really enough to, to change the minds of somebody. Um, but if it's, you know, dozens of folks that are calling in, writing in, emailing, you know they're going to weigh that pretty heavily and and try to make sure that they're on the isu- on on the right side of the issue according to their district.
2: Now, when you're interviewing candidates or putting together candidates, because that's that's one of your jobs, right. correct, Is to kind of help get candidates. Try to find good folks. Okay. Yeah. Does right is right to work or let's say some other issue? One of the issues that comes up in the interviews as you're trying it to get up. people who fit up fit the district.
0: Sure, it comes up, and <clears throat> you know, depending on which district we're looking at. Um, you know, we might be looking for a, a certain type of candidate. Um, you know, some of these candidates that are from, you know, Jefferson County, we knew that to kind of completely swing Jefferson County from blue to red that we were looking for labor friendly Republicans. Um and that was certainly a part of the conversation a couple of years ago and you know, two, four years ago.
2: Do you need that now? Or not? Or is it um, less important?
0: I, candidly, the northern part of Jefferson County, we probably don't need it as much anymore. The southern part is still much more labor friendly.
1: I mean, the other variable that I don't think gets talked about as much is even if right to work isn't overridden now, if you get a Republican governor after 2016, it doesn't matter if you have 116 or 105 or 97, you're probably going to be able to pass right to work and get it implemented. Correct. Sure. And I think that that's
0: a big, you know, selling point that a lot of the Republican gubernatorial candidates are out there. They're saying, listen, we could have this done. You know, my my pen would have signed already and this would be law this coming August or whatever. Um, so I think that's a big part of the pitch.
1: And then conversely, if you're a, a Democrat and you want to right. get labor support, you you can say, I want to stop You know, GOP candidate X, we have to say that now because we don't know who it's going to be. If you don't vote for me, right to work is going to become law of the land. And
2: and Attorney General um, Chris Coster, who is the only major Democratic candidate for governor right now, has made a point in the last few weeks. I mean, in his pitches, he's been right. sending out emails, tweets, all sorts of things, underscoring just what Jason said. So
1: do you think, you mentioned before about the gubernatorial field, and there's it's a it's a big one so far. I think there's three or four announced candidates that could go up to five, six, Correct. or seven. Do you think, are you confident that whoever the nominee is, that they're going to be able to stack up against Coster, who, although people like the David Barklidges of the world says he's beatable is a pretty politically astute guy given his track record.
0: Chris Kosser is an extraordinarily talented guy and a, a talented politician. Um, but I think that there is a way to expose him as exactly that as a calculating guy, you know, a guy that's just making moves to kind of climb the ladder. And I do think that he's beatable. I think that David Barcladge is right in his assessment. I think that really any of the major candidates for governor right now, have a good narrative and they have different narratives against chris Coster. but i think that any of them have a good narrative to run against chris uh again if we have a quality presidential candidate and a good ground game here in missouri I think that it creates a climate that's difficult for Chris.
2: Now, the fact that Roy Blunt is expected to run for reelection, yes, and he is arguably the most uh, influential Republican in the state right now, as far as who's holding office. Sure. Does that help or hurt?
0: It definitely helps.
2: And, and is there a particular reason why Blunt? I mean, Blunt's campaign put out these anti-Hillary p- stuff over the weekend, right? Uh, right before she came on Tuesday, which I covered. Um, does that help? I mean, or not?
0: No, it it, it does. It, it helps, and I think that you, you know. You want to explain that? Just yeah, should, I, I think that just Republicans, so our listeners
2: have a better sense of this.
0: You know, part of success in campaigns, and this is why we have swing elections that you know where it looks like all Democrats win, like they did in two thousand eight, or all Republicans win, like they did in nineteen ninety four, um, is that you know you're you're in in addition to the candidates, you're also selling the brand. Uh, And you're selling, you know, whatever it is that the party platform is and what the issues are and what they believe in. So when somebody like Senator Blunt, who is extraordinarily important to Republicans in Missouri, uh, is out there and he's kind of leading the charge, that just goes to show that, okay, you know, this is one team. We're all kind of, you know, so Senator Blunt's not running for president, but he understands that, you know, we're all part of the same team. We're all part of the same brand. Uh, and you know, it, it's really about who has better ideas in that election cycle, and the ideas that people are are most inclined to
1: support. Well, uh, we will have to see what happens in 2016. It's going to be a busy election season for both reporters and for political types. Well,
2: hopefully, we will have had a lot more politically speaking by then. Uh, we may have to du- <laughs> We may have to have a hundred politically speaking next
1: year. <laughs> Double down. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on uh, our show today. I appreciate the invitation. And uh, to close us out, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at J Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at...
2: At that's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And
1: we can follow you on Twitter at... Uh, S-Dickhouse, D-I-E-C-K-H-A-U-S. There's probably plenty of WWE references in that account <laughs> along with mine. <laughs> Until next week, so long.